Leading Ideas Talks podcast is brought to you by the Lewis Center for Church Leadership of Wesley Theological Seminary in Washington, D.C. Subscribe free to our weekly e-newsletter, Leading Ideas, at churchleadership.com slash leading ideas. Leading Ideas Talks is also brought to you by Be the Welcoming Church. With this engaging video resource, you'll learn how your church can make visitors feel truly welcome and comfortable through best practices for developing welcoming worship, church buildings, congregations, and websites. Learn more about Be the Welcoming Church and watch sample videos at churchleadership.com slash be the welcoming church. And remember to stay up to date with the latest church leadership strategies and information. Please like and subscribe to this channel and click the bell icon to get updates for new videos. What is the economic impact of small congregations on their communities? In this episode, we speak with Bob Yeager and Rachel Hildebrandt of Partners for Sacred Places about their report on the economic halo effect of rural United Methodist churches in North Carolina. Welcome to Leading Ideas Talks, a podcast featuring thought leaders and innovative practitioners. I'm Jessica Anschutz, the Assistant Director of the Lewis Center for Church Leadership, and I am your host for this Leading Ideas Talk. Joining me are two staff members of Partners for Sacred Places, Bob Yeager, the president, and Rachel Hildebrandt, the director of the National Fund. Recently, Partners for Sacred Places released a report about the economic halo effect of rural United Methodist churches in North Carolina. The focus of our podcast today is this significant report and the impact of rural churches on their communities. Welcome, Bob and Rachel. I look forward to our conversation today. Thanks for having us. Yes, indeed. want to start off giving our listeners an idea about um, Partners for Sacred Places. Bob, could you give us an overview of the organization? Sure, absolutely. Thank you. Uh, well, we're proud of the fact that we're almost 35 years old now, and we're really the only national nonprofit that focuses on helping congregations and the larger community work together to make the most of older uh, churches and synagogues and temples and mosques um, as places that serve both the worshiping community and the larger community. Um, they obviously have cultural value, architectural value. They make a major have a major presence on our streetscapes. Um, they're places of worship and education. Uh, but we've been learning a lot over the years on how spaces are shared and how these buildings really benefit the homeless and kids and the arts and seniors and people who are hungry or in need. Um, so we try to help congregations and their neighbors uh, think about ways to keep these places vital and full and alive and cared for. Thank you so much, Bob. I'm really excited about our, our conversation and learning more about your work and the report. What prompted Partners for Sacred Places to research the economic impact of rural churches? It started in the 90s when we began, began to ask ourselves, what happens in our sacred places during the course of the week, not on Sunday morning. We know what happens then, but the rest of the week, you know, who is served? How are spaces used or shared? Um, how do congregations contribute to the health of the community? And so we, and we realized, by the way, no one knew. This is in the 90s. No one knew this. Seminaries did not know. 
religious studies programs did not know, preservation and architecture programs did not know, denominational offices did not know. No one knew what was happening on a Tuesday morning or a Thursday night. So that's what led us to do three rounds of research. And we're talking today about the most recent round. But um, we really wanted to help tell the national story of how sacred places benefit the larger community and then help congregations tell their own story of, pu of public benefit. So that's the larger construct for what we've been doing. But Rachel, I'll, I'll in invite you to add more. Yeah. Just to echo what you said, Bob, I see the the goal of it is twofold. It's both about empowering us to advocate on behalf of congregations and all the good work that they do, and also equip congregations with the tools necessary to speak a language that is understood really widely by civic leaders, right? Because not everybody appreciates old buildings. Not everybody is a person of faith, but I feel like everybody does understand dollars and cents and economic impact. So when congregations are empowered to make a case for support for why their capital campaign matters or why what they're trying to do in the community matters, it is so powerful to have that kind of information on hand. Absolutely. Before we jump into some of the, the findings of your report, I want to invite you to define for our listeners a couple of the terms. The first being economic halo effect and the second being how you understood rural. Economic halo effect refers to the economic impact that a congregation has on its community and then communities radiating out from there. We believe that the effect that congregations have is most significant closest to the congregation's building in sight where the work is being done, where the congregation is meeting week after week and often using the building day after day for programming. So the impact really starts with the building and then radiates out from the air, kind of forming a halo. That's why we call it that. But ultimately, it is economic impact. Um, and then rural, that was tricky to define because you can find so many definitions out there of rural Ultimately, we ended up going with the University of Illinois scholar, Andrew Iserman's typology. He is a typology that can be used to classify counties anywhere in the U.S. as either urban, mixed urban, mixed rural, or rural. And that's what we did. So we used that typology to assign a type to each county in North Carolina and then only used counties that met um, the rural, mixed rural, mixed urban classifications. Thank you so much for that clarification. So tell us about, about the study. What did you find? What did you learn about rural churches in North Carolina? So we surveyed 87 rural congregations across North Carolina. We found that the average congregation has an economic impact of $735,000 per year. If you take out the top 10% and the bottom 10%, that number is about $500,000 still i think those numbers are super impressive it's definitely a number that is higher than we anticipated you know we were kind of falling victim to some of the stereotypes about rural churches thinking they're going to be small they're going to be struggling they're going to be focused on doing you know food pantries and clothing closets and not much else but that is not at all what we found so tell our listeners more about the economic impact of these churches. What what does that 735,000 plus represent? Yeah. 
Um, direct spending is one of the things that we look at. An average congregation spends about 80% of its annual operating budget locally, hiring locally, and then hiring, supporting local vendors. So purchasing goods and services locally. Um, in addition, offering education programs. Several of the congregations we surveyed operate early childhood education programs. So preschools, daycares, and some even have K through 12 schools. Um, they attract people to the site by hosting rites of passage and arts events. Congregations are hosting weddings, funerals, birthday parties, family reunions, and also arts events of all kinds, concerts, plays, things like that. And people come from all over to visit for those events. Um, and they'll spend money in the area or in the adjacent town because they're there for that. Congregations also... Um, offer and host community serving programming. So programs that benefit others in the community, not just members of the church. Um, those things can absolutely be measured. We found that congregations in rural North Carolina do a ton of that. They are contributing tons of volunteer time to those initiatives, tons of donations in terms of food, clothing, everything you can imagine. So we found that just like the urban counterparts, Rural congregations do all of those things too. One of the things that really surprised me about the study was that you're finding that churches employ on average 1.4 full-time employees and four part-time um, mm -hmm. with the caveat of just a little over half of the congregations being served by a part-time pastor, which tells me that those full-time employees aren't aren't the pastors. Um, so talk a little bit about who is employed by these churches and what these employees are doing. Yeah. It's hard to answer that question in a cohesive way because it varies so much from church to church and it depends on what the church does and offers, right? So I think a good example of this one's probably... Franklinton UMC in Franklinton. It's a really small congregation. At the time of the survey, there were 40 people attending on an average Sunday with an active congregation of about 25. Their total economic impact is 1.2 million, largely because they offer a um, preschool to 40 students in the community. And the multipliers associated with that are really high. Um, so in that case, I don't remember off the top of my head if they had a full-time program coordinator, but they most likely did. That's a good example of the kind of like church-specific staffing I saw. Um, but it's clergy, sometimes more than one clergy, sometimes just one part-time clergy, program coordinators, teachers, maintenance staff, treasurers, secretaries, those sort of things. That's that's really, really helpful. And I think speaks speaks to the role of of congregations and communities being a place of employment and and reaching out to the community and supporting in that way. Your casual reader might think, well, a, a large uh, halo effect implies a large membership and a large staff, but often not. That's not the case. Even a small staff and a small membership can have an enormous impact, which is useful for all of us as we think, well, can do small congregations have value? 
if they're so small, can they have value? And the answer is often, often the answer is yes. The smallest congregation in the study was a five member congregation and the largest was 365. So there's this really wide range. And I, I think the majority of them were on the smaller side. And, and I think that really speaks to the way the report sort of debunked some of the myths about rural churches being in decline and not being relevant to their communities. Mm -hmm. Your report found the total opposite and in fact found that 79% um, of the beneficiaries of the rural congregations weren't members of those churches. Yep. This this is a point we make a lot when we when we talk to folks around the country is that in effect churches are serving as de facto community centers for most of the week. The vast majority and it's even a little higher with urban, but also with rural small town, the vast majority of people served are not members. So and why why is that important? Well, it can help a congregation say to a donor or a funder or government that's that's not Methodist say you know, we're, we're really serving everybody here. We're a civic place as well as a religious place. So if we need some help to fix the roof or replace a boiler or make our building more accessible, would you consider helping us? Seeing us differently. Yes, we're Methodist, but we're also more than that. I, I want to invite you to share how, what are some of the ways that congregations are impacting their community? Right. What are what are they doing? You've mentioned child care centers, food pantries. Was there anything that surprised you over the course of the study? Yes, I discovered that some of those congregations in North Carolina are just so unbelievably creative. They're really attuned to both the opportunities and challenges in their respective communities, and they develop programming based on those particularities. Like, for example, one comes to mind, um, Swansboro United Methodist Church. It's located in an area of North Carolina that has a thriving regional economy because it's coastal. And every summer people come in, stay a week, golf, go to the beach, whatever. At the end of the week, they tend to leave groceries behind, like fresh, unopened groceries, just untouched. Congregation realized this and thought, aha, there's an opportunity here to take advantage of. So they reached out to the resorts, developed a partnership, and now the resorts, when people check in, give everybody a paper to sign. They say, you know, the congregation could come and take the food at the end of our stay. So that's exactly what they do. They send volunteers at the end of the week, every week, all throughout the summer. They pick up the food and then take them to local, take the bags of food to local food banks which I think is just incredible because not only are they contributing to local food banks at no cost to themselves at all, they're also saving food from being wasted altogether. That's a really creative answer uh, to a to a seasonal to a seasonal situation, um, but also how resourceful as far as getting the food to those to the people who need it most. Mm -hmm. Rachel, I know you've you've touched on sort of programs for children and youth and also the the food programs that rural congregations serve. Can you lift up some of the the examples that caught your attention? Yeah. Almost 
every congregation we surveyed does food programming of some kind, and that can be a food pantry or a monthly meal. Those are the more typical type of programs. I did encounter one congregation that started a hot dog social program. They just call it like a hot dog program. And started back in 2005, I believe, initially as a fundraiser to raise enough money to buy a church van. But it was so popular in the community that it became a permanent mainstay program. Before the pandemic, it was every Saturday. And it was so widely known and appreciated that literally everybody in the community would come. A lot of congregations off, often do benevolent giving. So that means when somebody shows up at the doorstep, in need of money for a meal or money to help pay a utility bill. The congregations are all, almost every single one is doing that and stepping up and meeting the need like time and time again. A lot of them do ramp building too for the older members of their communities. That was a really prevalent thing that I saw. Um, as folks get older, it gets harder obviously to you know, go up steps in their homes and the homes have to be made um, accessible. So groups of congregations will get together and build ramps at no cost whatsoever to the members of the community. So I saw a lot of that as well. It's really incredible when you take the time to to think about the impact that these congregations are having on their communities. And I'm sure that if we were to expand the study beyond North Carolina, we would find uh, small congregations impacting their communities all over the country. For sure. I know from from my experience serving in uh, the Hudson River Valley of New York and serving smaller congregations that many of them are facing questions about their futures, mm-hmm. about whether they should close or or perhaps merge with another congregation. And in the report, you lifted up some questions about community impact that should be considered. What would you hope church leaders would consider regarding their impact on the community when they're in the midst of these conversations about closing or merging? Yeah, I think that this is especially important for denominations that are hierarchical, where the judicatory itself has a lot of power in deciding whether a congregation stays open or not, or merges into another or not. Uh, They tend to focus in on worship numbers, membership numbers, budget, whether they're meeting their annual apportionments, things like that. And I get that those things matter, but they're definitely not the only things that should be considered. Um, You also have to consider, I think, you know, what is this congregation doing in its community? What is the impact that it's having in its community? If this church goes away, what programs and who will be impacted by the absence? You know, like you can't just displace important programs or leave a community hanging. It's, it's not a good look. Another way to look at all this is if a denominational uh, leadership is thinking about a church that's small, but there is some evidence of impact, um, another approach is to work closely with our congregation to help it articulate that value in new ways and develop new sources of support. Because one thing we learned nationally is that most congregations are not terribly good at articulating their larger value. They don't even know it. They haven't learned how to kind of document and tell that story. 
And but once they do, they can be working with local donors and funders, the community foundation, the city office, to to help them sustain their presence and sustain that building, even if it's still somewhat small. Now, of course, that's not possible everywhere. We know some congregations will have to close and, and buildings will have to transition to something else. But I think there are cases where congregations with some help um, to broaden their their fundraising and to, to gain new sources of support, they can sustain themselves. And those important programs and outreach that they do does not have to be dislocated. So I think that's something for denominational leaders to think about. Thank you, Bob, for lifting up the importance of of telling telling the story behind the ministry and of what congregations are doing and and also the importance of of partnering beyond the denomination or beyond the congregation um, to really become a resource for for the community. One of the things we do is invite congregations or encourage congregations to um, invite the community and even if it's a simple like cup of coffee over an hour and walk them around the building and talk together about ways that that building can be more fully used and fully supported. And the thing that we see time and time again is that civic leaders are delighted to come in and talk. They've just never been invited. So if they come in, they will often have their own ideas and, and connections that they can make to help that congregation make the most of their building and, and also sustain it. The, the power of invitation. Mm -hmm. It cannot be uh, overstated, I don't think, as far as even welcoming visitors into the congregation or, or community partners. When we think about church buildings, um, I know that there are any number of church buildings in this country that are, that are underutilized as far as they are, they are great spaces that could make an impact on their communities, um, but perhaps need to be reimagined. What are some of the creative ways you have seen congregations reimagining their space in order to better meet the needs of their community? I have thought long and hard about this. And in North Carolina, among the rural churches in particular, I've come to the conclusion that I don't think they're doing the best job of that at the moment. I think it's a huge opportunity that is in front of them. Both in North Carolina and elsewhere, um, we we really believe in kind of asset thinking and asset mapping, seeing the building as a cluster of opportunities and strengths and inviting the community to, to come in, as I was saying before, to think together. And we often uh, bring architects in too. So architects can help a church reimagine how spaces could function still respecting the beauty and the character of that church, but also allowing spaces, you know, it may not be the sanctuary, it may be the parish hall, or it might be the fellowship hall or the kitchen and the dining room that could function in some new ways. So architects can be a part of it too. Uh, one good example, uh, not in North Carolina, but in New Mexico, there's a Presbyterian church that's much smaller than it was. And I think they might've wondered if they could survive the next 10 or 20 years, but they started this process of engaging with their community. And what's emerging now is the likelihood that they will become the home for the state's most important orchestra that was looking for a home, a place with good acoustics that have the right size. And so the church will probably use a different space as their worship space and partner with the orchestra to, to make better use of this building. Now that's a dramatic case because it's an orchestra. Not every town has an orchestra, but it came out of a community engagement process. 
And the ideas didn't exist at first. They kind of emerged from this community engagement process. And whether it's a large process or a small process, it's something that almost any church can do. I have found that the process of being there on site with the congregation and asking the questions that we do as part of the survey, like, do you share space with other organizations? How about this kind? How about this kind? How about this kind? We do it that way to jog their memory and make sure we're covering every base possible. The nature of doing it that way seems to inspire congregations to give some of those things a try because we're bringing up ideas they maybe haven't heard about before. And that's an unintended side effect, but it is like a very real thing that I hear from congregations again and again. I'll finish up the survey and they'll say, wow, you gave me some really good ideas about things we could try or things we might want to do in the future. Um, space sharing more being one of them that was very common in North Carolina. And I can think of two congregations of the 87 that after the process of being part of the study have been very intentionally exploring the possibility for underutilized space on their properties. So I feel like we inspired a little bit of that. What a wonderful unintended outcome of, of the study. When we think about community engagement for congregations that perhaps haven't really thought about engaging some of their partners or potential partners in conversation, how might a congregation get started with that conversation? Um, I think the place to start is to invite, you know, bring together a, a little task force of leaders from the congregation, lay people and uh, pastors or staff, and start to brainstorm a bit about the people they already know. They may not have been in the building, but so somebody may know the mayor. Somebody may know um, a, a leading uh, civic activist or donor. Someone may know someone active in a neighborhood association or a county arts agency. Um, and you can start with some of the people you know and then branch off from there. It's just starting with this, this, the two degrees, three degrees of separation between the church folks and those in the community. And um, you know, one person can lead to another and you might say, okay, here are the six people that make sense for us. Let's invite them in for an hour and, and reintroduce them to the church and begin to talk about what they see. I think in parallel, congregations should be inventorying what they have trying to kind of step back and look at their properties with new eyes. Because sometimes when you're there week after week, you just don't quite think about what's right in front of you, right? Maybe for the most part, the congregation thinks the building is really well utilized, but perhaps it's not. So I think that in parallel to doing what Bob described, it's important to take a new look at your property and what you have. Um, before you can start really envisioning new possibilities for it. We, we've been doing this work in Indiana, as I was saying, and people will often say, you know, we'll walk around, try to get them to think in this fresh way. And they'll say, oh, that's the, you know, that's the, um, the women's group. Um, that's where they meet. Uh, or that's the meeting where um, the, 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 you know, like the third graders are. And then when you really probe, you find out, well, the women's group uses it like for an hour a week. That's it. And, and, the, and the third graders don't even use it anymore because there's no third grade class anymore, you know? So they, 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 they're relying on their memories and it's very affectionate because they love those memories of how these spaces have been used. But when you really get into it, you realize that most of the building is used very little. And I think that, that as Rachel says, that kind of, um, that kind of organized rethinking and, and reminding of what our spaces, how they're used now is a good place to start because it's, it's like 
you suddenly realize, my goodness, most of this incredible resource is vastly underutilized. So we have a huge opportunity here. Opportunity and tremendous potential to make an impact in the community in a, in a positive way that can fulfill the, the mission of the community of faith. Exactly. As we think about the report, I want to invite you to share how can listeners find the report and how, what thing, what, what do you hope congregations would, would glean from the report, whether they are in rural spaces or more urban or suburban? Yeah. You can find the report on our website, sacredplaces.org, under publications. It's pretty easy to find if you follow that path. Um, it's an important study, so like we've raised it up, made it really visible on our website on purpose. And in terms of what congregations can glean, ultimately, I hope that congregations and their leaders will see themselves in the work, and they'll be encouraged by it. Um, I'm the director of the National Fund. It's a grant-making program helping congregations undertake significant capital projects. And in that role, I just, I so strongly believe that the building is an asset for ministry and the building is important to your congregation, but it's just as important to the community and those you serve. So when you are raising money to support your building or to, you know, become sustainable in some way or another, like invite the community to be a part of that. I think that's that's really what I want congregations to to take from this, to be inspired to reflect on the impact that they have and then ask others to support them in their work. Rachel, you mentioned the work of the fund. I want to invite you to take just a moment to to share a little bit more about what the fund is for our listeners and also how it may be a resource for them. Yes, thank you so much. Um, the National Fund is a program of Partners for Sacred Places in collaboration with the National Trust. It's a grant-making program. We offer grants ranging from $50,000 to $250,000 for significant sacred places across the U.S. Um, we fund core preservation projects like new roofs, repointing, things like that. But we also fund projects that make space more usable or accessible for congregations and communities. Um, in addition to the capital grant, we offer a range of services to ensure that our projects are successful, including training, group training in person, technical assistance, and small seed planting grants, planting grants. It's available to rural and urban, mm -hmm. um, to all denominational traditions, and it can be a modest project or it can be a major project. Um, but, but as Rachel says, we want to provide a whole bundle of services to help ensure that every project is well-planned and well-executed. Yep. And there is a separate website for the fund if any of the listeners are interested in learning more about the program. It's fundforsacredplaces.org. We can link to those in on our podcast page once this is released so that folks will have easy access to those websites. As our time draws to a close, Bob and Rachel, I... I want to invite you to just offer words of, of wisdom or hope for those struggling small church leaders out there. What, what words of encouragement do you have for them? One thing I'd say is there is reason for hope uh, because you can do this 
more likely if you don't do it alone. And when I say this, meaning, you know, keeping your building active, keeping it well cared for, doing your good work, worshiping, educating, serving in this building, which, you know, you, you may be facing some repair issues, but we, we say to congregations, don't do this work alone. Connect to your community, invite them in, think together about how to make the most of this building. Think together about how to invest in the new furnace or, or replace the roof or fix the windows. Um, because generally we see that communities respond when congregations call for help and for talking together. Um, and there's just no reason to feel alone or to do this alone. So do it with your community. And there are lots of tools and techniques and approaches. That's a lot of what we do is offer resources and tools uh, because we want small congregations to last and to be healthy. So I think there is a lot of hope to offer. Small does not necessarily mean struggling or unhealthy. Small can be, can be healthy, vibrant. Small congregations do really vital, important work. So think, don't fall into the trap of thinking, playing the numbers game and being obsessed with those numbers. Thank you so much, Bob and Rachel, for, for your work on behalf of Partners for Sacred Places and for your work on behalf of congregations and your support of congregations as they strive to thrive. Thanks for having Thank us. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for joining us for Leading Ideas Talks. Please like and subscribe to this channel and click the bell icon to get updates for new videos.